Welcome to Welcome to Where Wellbeing Meets Art. Where Wellbeing Meets Welcome to Where Wellbeing Meets Wedding and Where They Depart. And Where They Depart. Welcome to Where Wellbeing Meets Art and Where They Depart. This podcast is all about the collection of musical creative friends that, that I've joined the journey with along the way. And the fact that I'm fascinated in that question where well-being meets art, where they depart. And I'm just bringing in creative mates of mine to, to have this conversation, which I think is compelling. And we're not doing it from a guru perspective, but it's stories and, and journeying. And um, just to intro you, Dave, I think our, our connection started when I was in a band with people that you'd been to music college with. I think that's when I met you. And then we both realised that we were sort of banging to Samba at that point. I was going to a Samba group like once a week and you were teaching and you had loads of gear. And I think I ended up investing in some Samba gear. It was a very strange time, very hazy. But we ended up busking in York. You were a Surdu. Maybe you had two Surdus strapped to you. And I had a snare... And we were playing percussion with our feet. And we earned quite a bit of money. And we ended up getting a busking licence for York. Making some money. And then, because we were both quite impulsive, we're like, why don't we do this abroad? Why don't we go on a summer holiday? And off we trotted to Amsterdam. You can interject. I remember all of of that is really true, but there was a spirit of... um me following you and so me wearing um me wearing surdos i remember you strapping a couple of surdos to me massive things and you saying yeah. we'll go to york and we'll kill it and we did go to york and you you were right i remember carrying all these massive amount of drums because you can't park anywhere near york uh, mm. uh carrying them about half a mile and going into York, and we earned something like 160 quid in about three hours. And that was us with no sort of, um, that was us improvising. And you're right, we went to Amsterdam, and that was based on you saying, look, if we've done this in York, we'll absolutely kill it in Amsterdam. And we went to Amsterdam, and our first session was exactly the same as York, where it was like 180 euros or something like that. As soon as we got off the train, and it was fantastic. And we were... That's right, outside Central Station, wasn't it? Was. Bag outside Central Station, literally off the train. Pretty Beginner's much. luck. We, yeah, it was. We pretty much almost got arrested, and then we're sort of getting chased around Europe. And it was a big risk for us to do that, because... Um, we had only sort of a couple of years or a year finished our degrees and we were skint. <laughs> yeah, constantly skint. But yeah, you know, I loved that sense of um, let's go, let's go. And you had such great confidence, but you had no idea what you were going into. You had no idea at all, and I had no idea. And that's kind of one of the dangerous and wonderful things about it. And I think it's worth saying that. Because that kind of spirit has informed my entire life. And I, I think it's probably informed um, your life as well. Well, it's really interesting because I, I've more recently become aware of the fact that I'm, I am very impulsive. Um, the thing is, is, I've been reading Rick Rubin's book recently. It's just brilliant. Uh, it's a creative act. And, and the thing is, is that this kind of sort of flow energy and seeing signs and and this is what he talks about is look looking for signs and 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 understanding that the universe will bring you the signs that you need to to progress if you're looking for them and you're tuned in i think that i was always living like that except i had no idea what my truth was and who really who i was you see what you said about I had no idea what I was doing. You're right. I was flowing on this optimistic energy that, come on, mate, if we could do it. You're, like you said, you know, like, come on, of course we're going to kill this. 
and um and, and we were having a good time so that that i thought okay this energy will flow out who wouldn't want samba drums in the street they'll love it obviously then we did actually get into a bit of a danger zone and and if i remember correctly when we were in barcelona we we went down las ramblas and got banned straight away <laughs> yeah. and we were desperate and i i seem to remember that you managed to get some money to get us home because i was broke you know you bought us tickets home but we were pretty stranded at that point and quite fucked and so it's great that you bring that point that um i balanced that optimistic energy and uh take still take risks but they're just a bit more calculated yeah yeah so about not long after that period it was around that period um i started going on zen retreats and vipassana retreats and it's like 10 12 days of silent meditation sort of 18 hour days no um no speaking at all to anyone food provided for you meditate on and off all day till 10 p.m. you get further and further into your own layers and on one of these retreats i realized as i went down through the layers of my own personality my own coverings i realized that i'd invented my personality aged about 13 as a coping mechanism to navigate my situation in life and i'd done that ever since and i think there's a sort of frontmanness um and just for the sake of the podcast you know i'm a sort of singer in a rock and roll band and a ska band and a teacher and a public speaker and stuff like that and i've got this frontmanness in my personality in my job and everything you know it's like pervaded my entire life um and i think you've really got that as well it's like one of the things i remember when i first met you was i was in my vampire band formidable charlton performing and you were the mc you were dressed like an apocalyptic master of ceremonies and you were like come on and i mean even though you're a drummer you've got this incredible frontmanness and i think it really goes back to because recently a couple of years ago we started talking about our traumas and i think we really invented a personality at some point as a coping mechanism and we've still got that personality brett like both of us we've really got that in common it's like i will not be defeated by my situation and 45 years later i will still not be defeated by my situation in the exact same way except i'm not quite skilled at it <laughs> and awareness yeah. of it right so you're you're talking about shadow stuff and masking right i was masking because i was hiding all this trauma that i'd never spoken about and i was also yeah. labeled a very wrong kid like a what's wrong with him type kid right because i never had language to explain what was happening to me or what was going on so I, i just ruled out that i could trust any adults any authority figures no one's going to tell me what to do because they're all full of shit or they abuse me i kept that until i was like early 30s is so interesting right because my granddad was probably one of the only adults that i i really believed in and and was inspired by and he was a really yeah, funny yeah. bastard and he would break up very tense dinner situations with cracking jokes and it worked and mm, and so yeah, i yeah. obviously saw that at an early age so i obviously learned those chops of how to make people laugh and then obviously use that sort of performance element but so the difference is i'm aware if i was to be using it as a mask but you you're right it's interesting you know that element is so important and I, i although i was using it um it's almost like uncensored un, unaware and just that's a mode and now it's a mode that yeah. is useful and great and i love it but there's there's this whole awareness around it and the other thing i wanted to say about this you need ego to perform and to to entertain to to get up on stage you need a certain amount of ego but but it's also understanding almost how much self belief you need well, that's a very important sort of discernment isn't it as a as a maturing person 
It's like, yeah, there's an egotistical element and there's a coping mechanism. But first of all, that character that we, let's say we invented or um, as a coping mechanism, uh, I mean, he saved us. You know, even though our characters are completely different, he really saved well, us. You know, I had several. Yeah. They got us out of where we lived time and time again. And, and, you know, for me, that was my way out and my route to self-education and autonomy and strength. And there's other qualities like courage and feeling the fear and going with it anyway, you know, which I, I think you can also relate to. But also later, becoming kinder and older and more honest with it. It's not as egotistical. We're no longer running. It's like there's a discernment of being there in terms of motivation for other people. So we're no longer mm -hmm. being whatever our character is, coping mechanism, or, you know, I must be in charge of this situation. There's now very right, much a concerning element. Is... Mm. Yeah. And so it's just the difference between um, using art to feel better or giving art and having a byproduct of that, which makes you feel good, but it's because you're giving the art, not doing it to make yourself feel better. And, that, and that's a big subject, I think. It's a huge subject because it's the motivation and the sort of the alchemy of humility with ego. Um, you know, what is your motivation? If you could nail it down to one thing, maybe it did start off with self-protection. Um, but later, you know, you can interject with uh, care and generosity, you know, and love. Can I come in on that? Yeah, yeah. I started playing drums at 11, right? And and it was my happy place that I could... If, if sure. there was something kicking off in the house... I just got. I just used to come home from school and play drums every day, and it was totally mm. to make me feel better, and it was totally for a happy place, and it, and so, that's how it all started. So when did you start playing music, and and what reason? It's uncanny, Brett. You know, it's an uncannily similar story. I, I lived with a violent alcoholic and a narcissistic sociopath, and I had no. Um, Confidence. I sat on a table on my own at school for several years. And I was fat. I had like Billy Ball Basin head, they used to call me. I had a massive head. And I, I just used to have a winter cut and a summer cut. And I had completely straight black hair. So it was like fringe down to my eyes during winter, fringe up at the top during summer. And I wore like flares. I mean, now I, I sound like a pretty cool kid. I was like, <laughs> but I was very unpopular and picked on until I was about 13. And I discovered street theatre with this acting group. And age similar to you, you know, I wasn't gigging in pubs, but for me it was acting and performing. I was gigging on the street and I found I could suddenly control a large group of adult strangers with my voice, with my body, doing accents, and I had a completely different personality. And I spent all summer doing it in Stourbridge with this group of, uh, you know, I thought they were like massively adults, but they were probably like 18, 19, 20. And they became lifelong friends, some of them. And so I did about six weeks street theatre with them and went back to school age 13, a completely different person. And for the rest of my life, it was like, nope, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. Um, I want to be a musician. I'm going to study music. Bye. You know, I'm going to Australia. I'm going to live in London. Yeah, I'm an actor. And it's just sort of taken me on massive amount of lifelong study and travel of performance and music and everything. And like you say, you know, it changed my internal hierarchy. And the internal hierarchy at that age um, projects out into the world and everyone around you accepts it. Age 13, you know, you walk into a room and say, this is me. Everyone will instantly accept it. The bullies will turn around and bully someone else. You know, the teachers will be like, oh, that's who you want to be. Cool. 
But you have to fight, don't you? And that's what creates the sort of fighter in you. You So you got a sense of power, your power, which is not a bad thing, mm-hmm. especially as you're really insecure. So that was the same for me. You know, th- this gives me a sense of power that I'm going to embrace and I don't know what the highest level of this power is or the lowest level. I don't know how to adapt it. But the usefulness of that, right? You actually like parts of yourself now and you've got this power that you realise, wow, great to see that at that age when, especially for me, everyone's telling me I'm a piece of shit and I'm lazy and not good for anything and never going to amount to anything and all that sort of thing. And then you said something really important that I only figured out, I think, about five, six years ago, which is when you say no to people, you can become successful because... It's a very big thing to know your boundary. You say, no, I'm not doing that, mate. I'm sorry, I'd lo- I can't do it, right? And, and people like that because they know where they are with you. And you like that because you know what you like and what you don't like now. Suddenly I'm expressing, no, I'm not really up for that. Because I used to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, and then fudge it or not be into it or, you know, realise that I shouldn't have accepted it or whatever it is. So, again... Really two amazing lessons to learn, but I think the subtlety is when to say no, when to say yes. So these were all the subtleties that we were missing. But what great gifts to receive at that point. I think for us, well, without mm. that, I don't know where I'd be, you know, in, in, Me in, too. in yeah, life now. To recognise that now is really a huge motivation for why to give that you know so when you practice art um exactly what we were just saying is why to be generous in art to give it to other people and anything if it's a child or an adult or someone that's consuming art or someone that's taking tools from you so if you're teaching someone like a child where we got to as a mode of transformation as a teenager is why it's so incredibly important to give art with at least a foothold or a remembrance of the transformation that that kind of um, realizing power within yourself as a human being can have. You know, art is like a mechanism for reality's cold and hard. Oh, actually, reality is also quite lucid and completely open. You know, reality is like that in exactly the same way art and absence of art is, you know, is it cold and hard or is it completely lucid and fantastical? Actually, uh, both are sort of ingredients in the realm of existence, you know. Mm. It's like a universal law that permeates lots of different things when you commit to anything and you do a journey with something that you actually learn and grow along the way because it's actually challenging and hard and 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 somehow you're finding enjoyment in it at the same time but that commitment to journey with a thing i think is it's really important commit to something commit to something in life and maybe it's many things maybe it's one thing but it's a biggie actually yeah You know, you have to, when you're learning an instrument, you become a performer, you have to grow, you have to transform. It's sort of multi-timbral in the mental aspects and the physical aspects, uh, socialising, conflict resolution, communication, listening. There's all the mechanics of it and the organisation and really important things like dedication and commitment. If you sort of speak about it in those terms, they're, they're very humanistic terms. It's like it's almost indistinguishable from growth as a human, really. You, you exactly. can become jaded or bitter or cold with your instrument. You have to learn to care more. You have to, it's like you have to expand for the music to expand constantly. And it's almost like what you were saying was making me think, yeah, yeah, it's almost indistinguishable from... If I say, like, spiritual, I'm not trying to be preachy there at all. 
I'm speaking to myself, really. You don't have to say spiritual. You can say humanistic or transforming out of pain or growing psychologically. You know, it doesn't matter. A musical journey, or let's say a creative journey, um, is sort of parallel or at one or almost intrinsic with a human journey in terms of your relationship with it, what it does for you and what you do for it. And it's just a huge help, isn't it? (laughs) Connection, community, like you're saying, being accountable to people. You end up being accountable to people. You know, there's a lot of, there's so many layers to it. But also what I was thinking is when you're playing music, when you're actually playing music, the communication is on a level that is quite rare, but also not rare. We, we just don't see it. So the unsaid or the little sign or, or someone plays that and then you respond, but it's subconscious. You're not saying, oh, he did that, I'll do that. You, you just do it, you know, and, and you're communicating. And it's a beautiful communication level that is that I think actually is going on all the time with all of us, but we don't pick up on that when you're in the shop. You can transfer this knowledge, like I said, to standing next to someone in a shop and starting to feel like, oh, maybe there's a bit of a, a rough edge there, there's something going on. I don't know, you know. And It sounds like um, we're saying something along the lines of... Uh music and performing music being like a safe arena for subtle interactions and communication. You know, exactly like you Mm. say, if your singer or your guitarist comes in in a certain way, you don't think words, you sort of respond. It's like it is mechanical, but is it mechanical? It's definitely not entirely mechanical. It's subtle. Also, by the way, when you talked about meditation earlier and we talked about Vipassana, my kind of first, what is meditation? Like, go in, and the first night, doing a very gentle, noticing the breath out of the nostril vibe, and I was, like, going to the place that I was went on stage when I was in that subconscious flow state. So I called it the zone. Uh-huh. And I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, my God, that's the zone. Like, oh, I don't even need an instrument to get to the zone anymore. I don't need to sit with a bunch of music. I could do this. So that that zone is, in layman's terms, I think it's focusing on one thing only without trying to change it, without any judgment, and stuff, energy happens where you're not in control of it and you're in a kind of a special, very peaceful place for however long you're there before you get distracted again. Just to, to link that with that subconscious, unconscious communication. Mm. Well, there's, um, I, I think of that uh, where you're saying the zone. Um, if you sort of take that on its, on its own as an experience or a movement of internal energy where everything's possible and you're completely aware of the minute detail of everything, say, in your mind or in your environment. You know, in in the zone as a performer, you might perform to a thousand people and you have to make each one of those people feel that you're making eye contact with them. You know, you have to scan the audience if you're the front man. If you're the drummer, you have to drive the band so that the audience feel your energy from the back all the way out forward. You have to be aware of all the internal and the external energy simultaneously without thinking about it. And I think, uh, relating to what you were saying about being in the zone in Vipassana, um, there's like a lucidity there. There's like a level of mind that's more subtle than when we're just sort of, I don't know, buttering toast whilst thinking about what we're doing tomorrow. You know, I think of that as a gross mind, a distracted mind that isn't really there. Um, Something's happening in the background that you're not aware of. The mind that we're talking about is like a lucid mind. And I think the lucid mind, this zone, is like um, a self-replenishing system of wellness. You know, I I think this is almost, I can't say infinite, but it's like 
relatively infinite source of uh, self-replenishing energy, the lucidity of that mind almost is wellness because um, the obscurations and the nonsense and the ego and the pain and the suffering uh, and the desire is gone from that moment because you're so present. It's like there's a wellness there when you're doing in the zone as a performer or as an artist and you go, yes, this is it, without saying it, or you're in Vipassana, it's almost the same thing, I think, is what I'm saying. It's a well, lucid mind that we've all got access to. And we accessed it through art and music and performance, first of all, and then through meditation. And I think that's why we're here discussing the two different things. It's like, are they that different when you think about the mind that does it? <laughs> but, but you know, that. bits of a great link. <laughs> no, I love it. And, and it, it's making sense of it all. One thing you, when you were saying that, the idea when I was playing in that zone and it's all just sounds great and you just know you're just grooving. Oh, that's what I was doing when I was drumming for hours a day. I was meditating, but I didn't know that. You know, I, I didn't realise yeah. No wonder it helped me and takes me away from trauma or whatever because I was basically just meditating when I was playing the same thing over and over again for ages. Sure. Going there. It's, yeah, it's fascinating. Could I ask a question? I, um, yeah, I just noticed I, I, I haven't done this before, um, and I know we're on with your producer, Owen, and we didn't have any kind of rehearsal or any kind of talk about what it's supposed no. to be or anything like that, so this is entirely spontaneous. And I, I've just yeah. noticed a chat button with a number on it, and I pressed it, and I see there's questions from Owen. Mm. So um, there's a great one here because it really ref relates to the period after our teenage years where we were adults, we were studying, gigging constantly. So Owen has suggested, where does the darker side of art enter? The sex, drugs and rock and roll, question mark. There's an element of that that I never really admired back in the 60s and 70s, you know, that kind of... And the 80s, you know, some of those bands, the rock bands that are all like sex, drugs and rock and roll. I never really admired that or aspired to it at all. Um, the so-called darker side of it that I feel that you and I and our culture, um, second half of the 90s and first half of the 2000s, was so free of like sexual aggression, even though, I mean, is it okay to talk directly about drugs um you know we took loads yeah, totally. of ecstasy and lsd and smoked loads of weed and that was like a freeing revelation i mean it was like an epiphany it was like oh right um the feeling of competitiveness is gone sexual aggression is gone possessiveness is gone it's like at these nights we're having where most of us are musicians and artists and everything um, and we're creating our own raves and there'd be like 500 people with loads of bands and loads of pills and it was an absolute social revelation from kids who'd grown up in the 70s and 80s and it's sort of, I think from our side was another extension of this like social epiphany, you know and energy transformation and shared generosity where creativity absolutely meets uh, well-being because we were really well weren't we I mean we were really happy and we were really nice to each other <laughs> okay it's such a great subject and well done Owen thanks for bringing this because it, it's also something that links our journey for sure and it's something I haven't really spoken about on any other pods much in terms of this detail which is because I met some musos in the first week of uni of course I did right and they happened to be going to Templehead, which was in the Leeds University. Ian says to me, uh, yeah, Brett, what are you doing on Saturday night? Do you want to come to a, a techno rave? And I was like, "What? what's techno? And then he explained it to me. He's like a classically trained musician, so he could, he could, get, he could get... And he's like, as a drummer, you'll love it, mate. You know. And then turn round a corner and just see a site that I'd never seen in my life, which is 
people with shirts off just just going mad but smiling and and I was just like what the f-? and I was coming up on my first pill that night <laughs> I was hugging women never 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 spoken to like tried not to speak to girls because I was so insecure just felt like they were a different I'd gone to an all, all boys school mainly hung around with blokes you know I, I had very little seeing them as a different species like that I can't connect with these people there was this flash of inspiration I've never seen this in my life and I wouldn't have been able to access those bits of myself without that pill I think really it might have t- maybe eventually but it was a fast track because obviously within a few weeks I was astute and I also fell into a crowd I was very lucky fell into a crowd who were very hedonistic but also liked to analyse the experience so we would we would do deep chat or funny chat or just hedonism and you know they're, they're still my mates today um, because I realised they were the first people to show me unconditional love but I didn't know that at the time all that's going on I think one of those discussions post club is like yeah but it's not actually that that's doing this surely that shit must be inside me it's not this pill is it it's just that's doing something to access that stuff that is in me so I was still though very in this masky place right so although there's all this openness and all this freedom there's also come downs which I didn't really know what they were and how I would be spending many days in bed hiding the best chat that I'd ever heard about this stuff was my friend Paddy and he he said taking these things it's like basically there's a wall a really high wall and over the wall is kind of enlightenment basically and this thing is a trampoline so you get on a trampoline and you can see over the wall it's so clear you keep seeing the but one day you're gonna have to climb the fucking wall mate and I was like wow that blew my mind in terms of just putting it all in context and and understanding it and then it's working out how much of it is escaping me again you know like we were saying like being being a different breath essentially the thing that I agree on is it taught me showed me a kind of purer breath in terms of a less critical harsh hate myself breath to like wow isn't life beautiful breath you know, so definitely when I was gigging, I wasn't, I'd have a couple of bottles of beer max. I was very sort of professional, especially then. That was a big thing for me to do. But afterwards, I'd get absolutely nutted. <laughs> so it was knowing where the balance is. Like, where's the edge in this? You know, I think the exit out of that stage is interesting as well. How to transition out of just going out and doing drugs at least every weekend, if not during the week as well. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, um, it really fantastically shows you the analogy of seeing over the wall. I think of it as a corridor, and there are various doors open along the corridor, and each door has got a, a light on that's a different colour. And you can you can stick your head, you, you're in a door, which is... You're in a room which is a period of your life where you've got a certain flavour and a smell and a mood and a mode and motive, same motivation for that period. And you stick your head out into the corridor when you take a pill and you look down the corridor, you're like, wow, look at all these different... <laughs> look at these different possibilities. And it's the same, you're in a different room in a later part of your life where you're getting down to some serious creativity for several years or serious study and you stick your head out of that door for some reason when you go on a Vipassana retreat and you see the corridor. I feel like it's the corridor. Um, We spend a lot of our life in a room, but it's really the the corridor in this analogy is, is us. You know, the corridor has a lot of rooms off it and the rooms have a lot of great qualities and experiences inside we wander down the corridor and get stuck in a room. Not stuck, but, you know, we go in and investigate a room. We investigated the room of the second half of the 90s. And earlier, we, in, we were in a different room. It was the, how do I get out of the shithole that I grew up in room? And later, it's, um, 
the social revelation of taking pills room and later it's like well how do I get some of this goodness without having to take pills and be surrounded by 200 friends because um, it's as if that's what you were about to touch on that there was a period where everyone left and went all over the world and you were left now having to face the cold hard climate of how do I make money pay rent buy a house and continue to be creative etc without taking drugs and without studying etc that was like a hard period wasn't it where it was I found it more difficult to be creative and be well mine lasted a long time again I don't regret this is part of my gig I needed a long transition but it was hard I made it easier by making it a long transition but also probably fuck some stuff up along the way when I, you know because of that so it's kind of that was my gamble I guess mm. yeah my my transition period was long as well um I think confidence was part of it and cluelessness. You know, there was a lack of confidence. Who who knows what to do at that point without guidance? You know, you know what you'd like to do, but money money's difficult, isn't it, as an artist? And um, yeah. you have to you have to make money, especially if you spent five years studying. And I mean, we all worked quite a bit, you know, but you, you basically come out with nothing. You've no infrastructure, no vehicle, no clothes, no equipment. You've got no house. And it's like now you're supposed to just go into professional gigging where you've got to have tens of thousands of pounds of equipment and vehicles <laughs> to go into professional gigging or professional whatever it, it is you're doing. And that took me years. You know, I had terrible vehicles, for example, and I still lived in shared housing for years after the degree, and I spent a lot of time creating and studying meditation and stuff, but I didn't know what to do really with the creativity. My, my equipment and my computer, my vehicle was never good enough, you know. So my transition mm. period was a very long, hard road with, I, I think, pretty much zero support from society. <laughs> if anything, just pretty... the pressure of... It's the other way, isn't it? The pressure is like, what, what's going on with you? What, what are you doing with your life? Are you earning any money? Why are you still living with sh in shared houses? I was the same. I was living in shared houses until I was 34. Um, yeah. so look what you just said about that Dave because I realise you've always set up your own bands you know you're, you were always that guy and that's why you had that extra thing to bring in all the equipment because you mm. were like yeah I need a PA a van a band maybe I need to pay the band you know yeah you were setting up a business at that point really whereas I, at that mm. point I was just trying to get gigs but it's that pressure that you spoke about it's so interesting isn't it because while you're struggling by the way i think this is when we were getting off the trampoline and, and climbing the wall in that analogy <laughs> yeah. but, but often i think the 20s for a lot of people everyone goes through something when you're going from education to right now what am i doing with my life but it's interesting that while you're trying to figure out all this stuff and very few people understand it except for your musician buddies you've also got that whole added pressure of people asking i i reckon it's like a couple of times a day of like what what's going on with your music how's that going mm. earning any money which is mad because you're already struggling <laughs> you don't know yeah <laughs> you're trying to figure it out but if you respond i don't know i'm just trying to figure it out i'm i'm <laughs> I'm as in the dark mm. as you. They'd be like, well, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> you're, exactly. You're in yeah. your 30s. You live in a shared house. You've got a shit van that doesn't really work. You know, it's like, it's bad, isn't it? That extra <laughs> pressure of the response that I would probably give now would be, it's a fucking hard existence I've chosen, but I'm really into it. I think I need to do this shit. And if I don't, I'll be deeply unhappy anyway. But back then, I didn't have any of that. 
sort of confidence or language. So I'd just feel sheepish and like a dickhead again and be like, oh, it's the old Brit again. We did get through it through sheer hard work and dedication and commitment, you know, relating to what we were saying earlier about learning a craft or an instrument in the first place. Relating to what you were saying just now, I felt like that. I felt like uh, a bit of a failure. Like none of the gigs I was doing were good enough. None of the, I wasn't professional enough. I wasn't generally good enough to even be in society. I felt like an imposter, you know, like a bullshitter. And it's like, looking back, it's like, well, no, actually, I was, I was pretty good. I worked for years and years and years really hard to try and get better, etc., etc. And I feel like you, where I'd go back to that guy now, and, you know, 30-year-old Dave or whatever, I say, listen, you're doing a pretty good job, actually, mate. Doing great. And yeah. The only change I'd make is don't try not to stress as much and don't feel that you've got mm. to be something that you just keep going. Mm. Um, That's interesting what you just said because there's two things like the whole imposter vibe. Basically, we, we were going against the, the norm, right? The conventional. We're going against the grain mm. based on the fact that we had committed to our music. So we're using that knowledge of knowing I can do this. And then I think there's a thing with people because you never got that shit off your muso mates because they totally get it. So I think there's a thing mm. about if someone doesn't understand something and they don't really see the path, mm. then they just start throwing shit at you because it's like, well, just confused, are they? Or, or are they they're worried for you because they don't see that thing? Instead of saying, I don't really know what you're doing, but you, you, you've been doing this years, so you seem to know what you're doing. It seems like there's a lack of money around, but, but you've, you've managed to navigate that even for all these years. Because yeah. then I think I was deeply unhappy, partly because I was buying in to the feelings of inadequacy that people were bringing me from a place of them not actually knowing anything that I knew. Isn't that interesting? And, and so my unhappiness is coming from I'm not the person that other people who don't really know about my game want me to be. <laughs> And it really ties into your sort of inner negative voices that are based on fears and traumas from your childhood as well. Uh, useless, unpopular, whatever your voices are, there's sort of, there's an adult version of them. It's like, yeah, look, you're still fucking useless and unpopular and etc. <laughs> um, I've always been a bit different to other people not in a weird ego way in terms of look I've, I've just got different life experiences obviously unpicking it my source of me following drums was I I don't believe any adults they all earn money but hate their jobs I, I realise you're going to do this thing a lot of the day so why would I I don't want to follow them I think they're all dickheads or, or abusers and it's like I don't want to do life like they have and if I could pick something, in a way, it was a double-edged sword. Bit of a shocker, I'm going to be a drummer. Watch me. So there was a bit of a rebellion thing as well, because they're all like, you'll never do that, and I'll make sure I fucking do it just so I can put my fingers up at you one day, which I did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like that first year out of college, I earned, like, 20-odd grand, right? I'd never earned anything like that. Yeah, I was in my young 20s. That was my announcement at the next party when my uncle asked me if I'm earning any money, I go, yeah, actually, I'm just out of college and I earned 20 odd grand just from drumming. So the whole process of me becoming a drummer was a massive rebellion against everyone and everything. Mm. Understanding that, and I didn't at the time, if you know something, right, now I know what I know and I know what the signs are in my body about how I feel about that. So I didn't have any of that power back then. But mm. but I I did obviously on a deep level know that even if this is just a big rebellion game, that I am going to be a pro drummer. So then is there a way of basically understanding that you are right, you're more right than anyone else about things you want to do and achieve because 
they're not you and and how you get that sort of level of belief stroke confidence at an earlier age and how you have that ability to just say look it's hard what i'm doing i'm not going to pretend it's not difficult but i need to do this i feel it i'll be unhappy if i don't there's a sort of um as well as the defiance and feeling that you resonate differently there does seem to be a sort of symbiote nature between defiance and not wanting to do a job that you hate not wanting to do a useless to society job you know, manufacturing bits of plastic that you hate, etc. There's also, certainly in me, and I, I think maybe I detect it in you, an innate recognition that there's a transformative element to living a creative life. And having lived through trauma as a child, that you instinctively knew uh, that you had to have some sort of transformative element in your life, and that creativity, a creative life, is that because, you know, of that pain inside you, that that yes. needs to be transformed. You know, as a child, as a teenager, it's like some part of you knew that. Mm. At that point, was there a spiritual awareness deep down? There was a social, a social hi- hierarchical change. It was cooler was much more awesome in loads of life ways at that age 13 14 did you innately recognize that there's a spiritual or it doesn't have to use the word spiritual but an internal transformation mechanism gonna happen with this route the feeling that i got from music generally from a young age listening to music then playing it and I played piano before the drums, so I had a sense of melody as well. I think I felt this feels good, as well as all the extras that we were talking about. The actual feeling of playing drums, I love it. I love learning a new tune, like that process, doing that. And I think I probably didn't have the ability to think on that level at that point that you're saying, but I was thinking I could do worse than do this all day, every day. It feels good. And mm. probably an inkling that I was already transforming. So mm. there was probably a knowledge of that without awareness and understanding of, of me. But yes, there must have been that. Yeah, I, I feel like um, we know. It's like time isn't as linear as it seems. And that's why the sort of creativity, the sort of inner knowledge and transformation is connected in the future and the present and the past much more than just from a linear going from A to B thing. You know, I look back at the young little Dave and I knew instinctively that I had to. I couldn't do the mainstream thing in the mainstream school with my family and survive I did, same as you, I didn't think that out loud because I was a kid. I was just doing what felt good. But looking back, it's like I knew, you know, I always knew. I mean, that's why I'm still, I'm this age now. And I don't know if I have any hope of becoming like a big artist or anything like that. I mean, it's almost irrelevant to me. But I'm as committed as ever to having a creative space. Or because all the way back there, it's like I, I need it. The energy inside my body and my mind, spirit, needs that. I need conversations like this. I need people to come round to my house and have jams with electronic synthesizers and bits of percussion and then do weird poetry. Uh, you know, I, I sort of, it's all part of the same thing in a way. And I sort of almost don't care how popular it is. I kind of need it. (laughs) I think that's a really nice place to to end because essentially the, the, the less we try to second guess people's responses to what I'm going to say, I'm not speaking, thinking whether someone's going to like that because it's going to be a disaster because I'm constantly Mm. tripping up over myself. If I look at the people that went on, 
to success, right? So one of our contemporaries, Bill Lawrence, right, who's snarky puppy, four-time Grammy award-winning keyboard player, always had a sense that he was going to go somewhere, right? He was a monster. Keyboard player, his melody and rhythm, his sense of listening and time and groove and, and everything that he did was amazing. And he also used to just listen to everyone. And he in the cogs are turning and he's taking it all in. And he then made decisions that went very well for him. But one thing that I know from Billy is when they won the first Grammy and, and I said to him, you know, how are you going to keep your feet on the ground? And he said, mate, it's all about the music. Just that's what underpins it, creating the music. That sense of well-being comes from being so present in creating the music and being in the music. And he can always come back to that. And he's just in the creation of it not in the wonder whether I'll get another Grammy or whatever it is. I think that is the, the purest, best place to create art and probably have a really good life if you're, if you're only concerned with the creating of the music. Maybe will people like this inquisitively is the, is the closest you could get to thinking about what other people think. Otherwise, I think it's really dangerous. I think that's um, great. So if you want to say a concluding thought... Lovely. So, thanks for inviting me. I realised what you said about, um, you know, the self, the self consciousness is like, oh, thinking, are, are people going to find this interesting? It's always so difficult for the person who's organising it because you're like taking the responsibility. In this, I've got no responsibility other than to sit here and say whatever, <laughs> whatever comes to mind. Um, so, thank you so much, mate. I love you very much. Thank you for inviting me, and it's just been Brilliant. wonderful talking to you about, you know, what's on our minds. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating. And if you want to help other people find the podcast, you can leave a review. Only takes 20, 30 seconds. That would be lovely. See you next time.